here and this is Billy Elliot's Adventure Club Pride Special and the theme is Queer Spaces of the Past, Present and Future. I've squeezed in interviews with five wonderful queers from near and far and because it's taken me days to squeeze all their fabulous insight into one hour, I'm going to stop my intro right here. Happy Pride, love to all my queers, I gotcha. We have Ronnie Guetta and David Shepherd on the show, and I'm very excited to pick their brains on what's going on now, what happened in their past, and what they imagined for the future. Ronnie and David, would you like to start off by just sort of introducing yourselves a little bit and your involvement with the queer landscape of Brighton and beyond? Why not? My name is Ronnie Guetta. I moved to Brighton about 12 years ago. I'm a community organiser and events producer. I used to run Tramfrau, a queer performance party for women at first and then all queer people. And currently I work with David on Queer in Brighton, Queer Heritage South, a project that celebrates and collects our local queer heritage. I'm David Shepherd. I'm the executive director of Marlborough Productions which was formerly the cultural producer that ran the Marlborough Pub and Theatre for six years plus and I also work with Ronnie on Queer and Brighton. Amazing so we're going to go through a kind of queer landscape timescape so let's start with the queer spaces of your past let's start from the very beginning do you remember there being any queer spaces in your youth that might have facilitated a queerness within I was born in Rome in 1982, which feels like a century and a half ago, in the Jewish community. And within that community, I was born in a smaller even community, which is the Libyan Jewish community of Rome. There were absolutely no queer spaces for me when I was growing up. There was mm. two synagogues and a school. When I finally moved to university, I discovered a whole underground world of queers, mm. which still did not have a space. So this is uh, Rome in the year 2000. I believe there was one bar literally underground you had to go down a set of steps and I think it was open two evenings a week uh -huh. and I remember the first time I went there and I walked down the stairs and the excitement and the thrill and the fear uh, it was very nerve-wracking and it did not feel like home I wouldn't say that there were queer spaces in the set in my understanding of queer spaces it didn't feel like there was a community around them they felt like commercial spaces and that was pretty much it for for a long time for me there was pride i remember going to my first pride i think i was 15 or 16 and i didn't know i was queer maybe i did i remember just taking my camera mm. and some film and being very very excited to go to this event and i didn't quite know why and i remember developing the film and it feeling like the most incredible experience and it was probably my first the first time i saw loads of queer people and felt that excitement and connection and not you know without a lot of clarity around yeah I love that liminal space between knowing and not knowing fully who we are and yeah. those queer spaces kind of carrying us from not knowing to knowing um, Absolutely. and so do you think would you say then that these spaces kind of informed your your identity I think the lack of, and if I think about myself being queer, age 20, having a very difficult relationship with my family and with the people who were in my life, many of whom turned their back to me and really not having a community around me. I think my experience of being queer was very much informed by the lack of community at that point. Mm. The lack of physical spaces were to go and find comfort, to go and find validation. You know, now I'm now I'm a queer elder. I know what I needed at that time. I know what it, what it I would have really benefited from someone letting me know that I was okay and I wasn't yeah. strange and that there were other people like me. So I think that is the one precious job that queer spaces do is hold queer people when they need holding the most. Mm. Let's move on to David now. David, what about the queer spaces of your past? Um, I grew up in Poole in Dorset um, and was born in 1985, so I'm of a similar vintage to Ronnie. Mm. And I went to a boys' grammar school in Poole, and I would say the original queer space that we carved out for ourselves was the Poole Grammar School Library. And every lunchtime, me and the three boys who all ended up being gay as well, and who I'm still friends with and actually live in Brighton right now, oh. um, used to sit in the library as a place of safety reading the guardian <laughs> so and that was our lives and the way that we kind of uh, kept safe and out of people's faces in what was a very hostile educational environment mm. so that was like 15 through until 
18. And then I would say that I found temporary spaces that felt kind of more queer. Following particular artists, it felt like you could access these temporary and transitory spaces where you could be more queer. Bands like Garbage and things like that were who were really big for me when I was a teenager. I think I was like look, looking for my tribe and looking for something that felt like a kind of comfort for me. And I didn't really find that, I think, until I studied abroad in Portland and Oregon. And that was a really kind of like transformative experience in terms of identifying kind of queer subcultures and then coming back and moving to Brighton where I'd say probably taking up to present day like discovering the Marlborough and thinking wait a minute we could do something with this space was a real kind of penny drop moment. With the Marlborough as well were you the first to take it over and and help it become a queer space? It was a queer space for a long time so it had this checkered history and it, it was one of the first places that the Gay Liberation Front met in Sussex in the early 70s but at the time it was also where the National Front would meet so it was definitely not a queer space back then and it was it was kind of like a sort of classic old man boozer um it was next to the the registry office so it would be like births marriages deaths wakes and funerals things kind of stuff like that and then I think it was in the late 80s early 90s that it became a gay male space primarily and it had kind of blacked out windows at that point and was like a sort of cruise bar and then at some point in the sort of mid late 90s it became a, a gay women's space it's not independently owned which is a big sort of myth that people think that some sort of queer fairy owns the Marlborough but it's just part of a big pub company and they didn't know what to do with it it was like rotting when we took it (laughs) it was still rotting (laughs) in some senses so when we took it on yeah never stop rotting those toilets um but (laughs) um but when but when we took it on it was a really interesting moment because the trans community was kind of finding its voice and gaining a lot more kind of prominence and visibility in the city I think one of the things that I'm really proud of it's not that we had any direct hand of it but it provided a kind of container by which things like the trans pride committee would meet there every week and did all that fantastic organizing work to make the first trans pride happen in Brighton but in the midst of that we took on the theater and the pub and over time kind of found our confidence to say hey this is a queer space this is the kind of work that we're prioritizing here we had queer artists that came and lived with us for periods of time we all have lived at the Marlborough in for some period of our lives and it felt like a kind of clubhouse really for for the kind of culture that we wanted to see in Brighton for the kind of art that we wanted to make and secondarily I guess it was also this pub social space and and that that was the most important thing for a lot of people was being able to go into the Marlborough every day almost from midday till midnight Mm -hmm. to sit and be with people and drink a lime and soda, make sure that we made absolutely no money and have a nice time with their community and feel like they could bump into people and meet people and, and you know, feel that, that comfort. It was really hard to kind of reconcile it being a queer space that people had this expectations of, as well as also being a commercial business where we were expected to make money. Yeah. We were never really able to do that because the clientele that we served didn't really have very much money. And I remember Ronnie coming in when it was the manager before us running the pub and set the Marlborough up as the kind of pre-drinks destination for Tramfrau. Maybe Ronnie, you can speak a bit to like how you found running that sort of temporary space in Brighton. Yeah, I suppose when I moved to Brighton, 2008. I moved with my partner at the time and we actually really struggled to find community. We struggled to find queer people to go out with. I know this sounds absolutely incredible today, but but that was the case. There really wasn't much. There was the Marlborough and we would go to the Marlborough every now and then. It was mostly at that point space for women where you'd go and have some drinks and play the pool. One night, me and my partner and a friend just started chatting about, we started imagining what our ideal night out would add a queer people would be and then we just did it we made it happen we ran it for for years and it was wonderful and we met so many people and the first two years especially we just had local people just get in touch and make things for the night make installations and make work for it and just get involved everyone just wanted to be involved and it felt like a very non-commercial enterprise and we were just moving across different venues and that was very exciting it's it meant we weren't really in queer spaces, but that became increasingly more and more difficult. And I think the point that David was touching on is how do you run an event that's inclusive? So it's wheelchair accessible, it's got space for people 
who prefer to be somewhere quiet but still want to come to an event that's got space maybe for people who are sober. So how do you run a space that is really inclusive? Yeah, I, I guess we all we all at this intersection where like we try to run something that's community focused, but the framework is capitalism. Mm. in Brighton, which is just brutal, you know, it's a tricky one to solve. And if the Marlborough couldn't do it, I mean, I grieve the Marlborough every day. It was for me as a fairly sober queer person who loves art and loves people, but also doesn't drink. It was just the most incredible space where I was one of those terrible, terrible, terrible customers who would just come and have a cup of tea. Lime and soda mercenaries. That yeah. Would, uh, yeah. yeah, but <laughs> you I know, I, yeah. I just knew that there was a place at any point of the day where I could go on my own and someone would chat to me, mm -hmm. where I could go with my laptop and do some work where I could use the toilet, where I could just on my way back home at night, stop for a chat outside with anyone, literally anyone. There was just no problem with that. And we are absolutely missing that. And while there's loads of queer events and nights and cabaret, there isn't really a space and there's venues that are very affiliated with the queer community. You know, I'm thinking especially about venues that run cabaret and, and uh, drag nights. They're not really a home, you know, they're, in, they're not the kind of space that I would just drop by and have chat Sorry. with whoever is working at the bar temporary and transitory okay so thank you for that so we've looked at the queer spaces of the past let's move swiftly on to queer spaces now i'd love to hear what's happening and what you're involved with now both of you and what those things are doing those projects and events yeah so one of our big projects that we do is uh, queer heritage south slash queer and brighton which is a lgbtq plus heritage project that we've been delivering for the, since 2012 it started off as a big oral history project and as part of that, we've been kind of finding roots into Brighton Museum um, and we put together with a fantastic team of community curators an exhibition called Queer the Peer, which is currently running in Brighton Museum. And it was the first community curated LGBTQ plus focused exhibition that the museum had ever done at that point. It felt significant because there was always felt like this, there was this barrier around us being in that museum space. And it felt so weird because obviously Brighton has such a long and amazing queer past. Mm. And how do people engage with that, those um, projects? So we've got a website called queerheritagesouth.co.uk and earlier this year we launched a new community digital archive. So it's a user-generated archive. Anyone with queer stuff can upload things to our website and then they form part of collections and part of a searchable archive. We'd love to have a physical museum space. And the fact that you have put it online means that people can access it who are outside of Brighton as well. I mean, what would your childhood have looked like, David, if you'd been able to access such a thing pool do you think very different i mean one of the most transformative experiences of my life was being in san francisco going to the glbt historical archive there and it is just the most extraordinary place in the world and you just realize your connection to that lineage or that historical lineage and that community lineage of face relationships of culture and all these things and that's what's really appealed to me about all the work we've done with Heritage in Brighton is mainly just listening to people talk about their memories of relationships of spaces they used to occupy of their lives and you kind of that I think is intensely comforting and it's and... intensely healing isn't it to just have that queer ancestry and as you're saying it is linked to places is it's such a transient town Brighton but when you hear the history and you discover a story of a venue that used to be a gay bar you know it just sort of makes you feel connected to the space in a different way mm -hmm. and it is it is inc incredibly comforting and incredibly healing to just remember that you were here all along mm -hmm. it's sort of feeling seen and being seen by the people mm -hmm. who already existed before us and I guess this transitions sort of very seamlessly into the project New, New Queers on the Block which you said was a project about developing queer cultural space in places where there traditionally hasn't been any in the UK yeah, so we we run this project and I guess part of trying to ripple out what we've learned in Brighton to other places and hopefully be helpful to other communities at different stages in the UK is this new quiz on the block project and what prompted it was 
partly the feeling that lots of people were leaving London, lots of queer communities have left London again due to kind of gentrification and moving out to different parts of the country and kind of setting up their own little hubs of queer space. And we've been working with kind of grassroots communities to kind of encourage them and help them to develop their own cultural spaces, put on shows, put on nights to hopefully make people's lives better in those places. Ronnie, I'd love to talk to you about what you hope for queer spaces in the future. Uh, Wow, it's so difficult to imagine anything having been at home for over a year to actually be able to see people. Yeah. Um, Dare to dream, Ronnie, dare to dream. Yeah, dare to dream. the the utopia would be a place that's a truly inclusive that exists outside of the logics of the market that people can enjoy without having to spend money at i also want a place that's joyful and fun and hedonistic if you want it to be and a bit obscene because i think we've also sanitized ourselves as a community a lot <laughs> Absolutely. in in an attempt to make things inclusive and kind and welcoming which is absolutely a priority and and really important and if that's that's the price to pay. I'll, I'll sanitize myself. But I think, <laughs> but I would love, especially after a year of just being alone with my own self and thoughts, I would love a space where I can just go around and lick people's faces without having to worry about a deadly virus. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you ask me tomorrow, I'd probably tell you something a little bit more rational. But yeah. <laughs> I've caught you on an irrational day. Well, just like an absolute desire to connect and be with mm. others and mm. um, get involved and not be scared. I think we've developed a lot of mistrust of the other and other people because it's been so dangerous. So, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So a space that's that's inclusive and fun mm-hmm. and, and reminds us that we belong with each other and also we belong in the world and mm. um, we have a right to enjoy ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Any particular performers you'd like to see in this amazing utopic queer space? I'd definitely like to see um, more live music and I'd like the space to be immersed in nature. I think these are two things that are often removed from the queer community. I think we've got a lot of sort of punk and, and riot girl music in the community, but we've, we're cut out from like, you know, other circles of music mm-hmm. and a distance, quite distance from nature and I think I would love to bring these other realities of my life that I really enjoy into my queer community. So perhaps a large venue immersed in a beautiful rural space, but with really great connection to the city. And um, amazing. yeah, a place for creatives and non-creatives alike together. And some face licking. And a lot of face licking, David. <laughs> oh no, it sounds great. Sign me up, Ron. Yeah. <laughs> got your name on the door. <laughs> Oh, thank you both so much. We're running out of time, so we will have to say goodbye now. But it's been thanks for having us, Billy. Wonderful to talk to you. Best of luck with all your projects. And... Yes, yeah, you too, Billy. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. We have Tim Lights on the show. Tim Lights is somebody that I knew from uni. We did the same degree, didn't we, Tim? Yes, we did. It was a wild time. Yeah. So we graduated five years ago. Yeah, I want to say five. <laughs> So long ago. What a crazy ride it's been. But yeah, for the listeners, Tim, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you, Billy. Thanks for having me. It's been so long. I feel like we haven't chatted um, since we graduated. So thanks for reaching out. It's lovely being here. I've been seeing some of like your radio work that you've been doing and I just just felt really chuffed, really, um, and super flattered. So thank you. (laughs) Um, And just a little bit about me. I am Tim. I am a dance artist. I have been living in Bristol for nearly a decade now. I moved from Hong Kong about 10 years ago and went to Bristol Uni with Billy and has been working in Bristol ever since then. And I'm genderqueer as well. So lovely being on a show um, about queer spaces. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Firstly, Tim, are you doing any projects at the moment? Anything that you want to tell us about? Yes, I do, actually. I have been working on a queer Chinese documentary called Safe Distance. Mm -hmm. I was one of the interviewees and choreographer for it. The director is called Jamie Chi and she's one of my really good friends. She's going to be like slowly releasing bits and pieces of the documentary throughout the next year. So keep an eye out for that. It is absolutely amazing. And I also really want to shout my first ever radio show, Queersion, which is going to be on Nudes Radio sometime in the next few weeks, hopefully. Stay tuned. (laughs) So how do people stay tuned then, Tim? 
Um, if y'all want to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Tim underscore lights, T-I-M underscore L-Y-T-C, then you can find out what I'm going to be up to. Nice. That's so good. You're always a bit of a dark horse, Tim. You're dancing. I feel like I only really saw it in sort of second or third year and I was like, oh my God, such an incredible dancer. Right. Let's get cracking. I've got um, a few questions for you and you're going to share some songs with us as well. First question, what does queer space mean to you? Tim. Queer space to me means, apart from, you know, gender and sexuality, it also means for me a, a kind of mindset, a way of imagining potential possibilities that might sit outside of pre-existing boxes and constructs that we've mm. built. Yeah, I think that's what queer space means for me. I love that. Maybe just staying outside the box. <laughs> exactly. Or create your new box if you want to. Yeah. Create like a kind of invisible box. Invisible with, like, boxes. Glass walls. Yeah. Like, don't we have, like, kind of have see-through edges. Yeah. <laughs> or like not even boxes. Like why does it have to be boxes? It can be different shapes. Yeah. And different colours. Balls. Huge, massive plastic balls. <laughs> Diamonds. I love a good, love a good diamond shape. <laughs> plastic balls. I love that. Yeah, amazing. So I've got you in because I've asked you to share some songs for us. Mm. Um, and I wanted to ask you, as we are in the show, um, Billy Elliot's Adventure Club Pride special, asking woo-hoo! people about, woo-hoo, asking people about queer space of the past, present and future. So we're going to go through them one by one. So mm-hmm. let's start with the queer space of the past. Before you tell us what song you've chosen Mm -hmm. under this theme, what happened for you in terms of your past and queer space? That is such a good question. Um, I think queer space for me in the past was somewhere that was quite dark and in the nooks and crannies of society, like you kind of had to hide. Um, there was a lot of tragedy involved in queer spaces, um, probably because of, you know, a lot of the media depictions of queer people, you know, queer coded villains, um, and also like how loads of queer characters in films and all that kind of stuff just don't get really good endings. Like they, just, they just either die tragically or, you know, they, I don't know, they turn into horrible people and you're like, oh my God, nobody so wants true. to be like that, right? I actually saw a lesbian film recently where there was actually almost a happy ending entirely. And oh I was my like, God. wow, that nearly was completely good and happy ending. <laughs> was it like a shock to the system? You were just like, what? They didn't die at the end? I was the only one you need to tell me that you need to tell me the name of that film it was called two of us it's a french film about like oh. two older lesbians i think they're like in their 70s and they were retired and it was like quite an intense film very beautifully made mm-hmm. um and the ending i won't spoil it for anyone but it's okay. not it's not entirely entirely tragic <gasps> what a <laughs> shocker yeah <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> you know what, though? Actually, I do know a very good lesbian film that mm. has a happy ending. So mm. it was made in like the early 2000s. It's called Saving Face. And it's about mm. these two Asian-American lovers. Me and Davina, Davina's my partner, joke about mm. how like it's kind of a bit like our lives because the two main characters, one of them is a doctor and the other one's a dancer. <laughs> And it's kind of a bit crazy, which so I'm just mean. like. Are they like yeah. you in personality? Um, I think they're like more like the dancer is definitely like more femme, like mm. much more femme and much more glam than I am. I'm just like mm. I feel like a potato. So, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I relate so hard. I am basically a potato every day. Yeah, we can be queer <laughs> potatoes. You know what? I'm really happy with that. Like, yeah, queer potatoes too, with glitter and. <laughs> It could be a lot worse, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's move into your first song. You've chosen 16 by Ellie Lu. Yeah. Why have you chosen this one? So Ellen Lu is a Hong Kong and Taiwan-based counterpop and Mandarin pop singer, guitarist mm-hmm. and songwriter. Um, she was one of the few openly out female musicians. She came out in 2017 at the Golden Melody Awards in Taiwan. And she has a wife, a Taiwanese filmmaker called Fisher Yu. Um, The reason why I've chosen her to represent my queer past is because I grew up listening to her. And funnily enough, we also went to the same school when we were young. Um, Oh, weird. At the same time? Not at the same time. I think she left maybe like a year or two before I did. She's like eight years older than me. So just about like missed the mark. Um, Yeah. 
But this song in particular that I've chosen is quite bittersweet. It's about giving someone or something all of your heart. But in the end, it's wasted effort because you're never going to get the love that you mm-hmm. wanted or that you deserved. So you just kind of have to grit your teeth and smile and bear it. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much, Tim. Everyone enjoy. 16 by Ellen Liu. Thank you. Thank you. It's got a very like nostalgic like sound to it. It definitely brings up like feelings for me of when I was like 16. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I want to, I guess like I want this tragedy to be kept in the past. Like I don't want this pattern of tragedy to continue Mm. into like Mm -hmm. a present and into the future. Mm. Speaking of present and future, we're going to move on to queer space of the present. So this is a time for you, Tim, to talk about your queer space now. How do you relate to queer space now? And are you doing anything in particular in terms of queer space at the moment? Um, Queer space now for me, it's much brighter. It feels much more energetic. um, Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like, it's not so much like in hiding anymore like I Mm. don't have to hide Mm. um it feels more open and honest I think my key word for it would be honesty being honest with myself so that I can be honest to the world and to those around me love it and you've chosen Jason Kwan's give me up to love Tell me why. Um, I have a huge affinity to this singer because, like myself, they are a non-binary creative from Hong Kong. And he also Mm -hmm. moved to the UK quite a number of years ago. And I absolutely love the kind of glam and theatre, like theatrics to his songs. Um, Mm. And I guess I love how confident he is. And I really aspire to be like them, basically. So great. Okay, here is that reason was stone and accentuated ticking that even Lenny cannot stifle. It's all about who you know, a card game, a name, fame, obliterate your start and soul. You're rejected by the mold. I'll throw down a pit of vipers, seduce the viral. Jason Kwan is pretty cool, eh? I, I absolutely love him. I think there's, there's this sense of freedom in their music that I really want to embody. I want it to be a part of me. <laughs> Do you ever dance along to Jason Kwan? Um, not choreography, but this is one of my, you know, when I want a really good bogey in the room, in the bedroom, this is my like, I need to get all of my anger out and I need to feel myself and feel confident. Definitely what I dance to. <laughs> Incredible. That's so great. Right, we've got the last song now. Tim and seeing as we've done the past and the present it's time now to go into the queer space of your future so this is your opportunity to fantasize tell me what does your fantasy queer space look like you know we talk about like well queer people talk about like queer utopia a lot it sounds like such a space that is impossible you know there's always going to be bad things that happen and there's always going to be bad people in the world Mm -hmm. but I guess 
my ideal queer space for the future would be somewhere that people don't have to hide. Mm -hmm. They don't have to hide who they are in a world that doesn't persecute them, in a world that is accepting and open and loving and compassionate because mm. I feel like we all need more love and compassion in the world and less prejudice. I fully agree. So imagine you're building this beautiful queer utopia. Mm. What do you think it would like physically look like? Oh, oh, I love like an actual physical world. Yeah, physical queer space. Oh, I want the queer space to be on an island, maybe like a massive island. This can like this can be like a huge island and it's got like pink trees everywhere. Um, it's mm -hmm. got like beautiful beaches. I love the ocean, even though I hate yes. being in the ocean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you like looking at it. Yeah, I like looking at it. I just like being near it. Um, I like I love like cherry blossoms everywhere for reals um, and just rainbow everything because mm -hmm. obviously um yeah obviously um and i see kind of like people of all shapes and sizes like people dressed in like the most outrageous like things that they could think mm -hmm. of like if somebody you know what if somebody wants to wear a trash bag and walk around they can wear a trash bag and walk around but equally and that's celebration, yeah. celebration exactly and like but equally if you want to be like you know like made up to like the nines and like be the most glam mm -hmm. queen mm -hmm. or king you ever want to be that's yeah. totally accepted as well i see that like kind of like people that you would normally think of us being freaky mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. being celebrated and just living their lives you know doing the housework but like dressed in like your best ball gown <laughs> amazing and my next question was who would be there to perform but i guess would it be kim mortal the um the musician of your third and final song oh kim mortal would absolutely be there among you know mm. amazing other like artists but mm. kim mortal they are a queer non-binary second gen settler based on unceded coast salish territory um mm. and their ancestors mm. are actually from pangasinan and negros occidental so basically it means they grew up in surrey canada to filipino mm. immigrant parents but these are just terms that are yeah. more rooted in like the indigenous mm -hmm. culture they represent my future because i really like the sound of their music it's kind of like alternative mm -hmm. rap and soul combined with electronic music the lyrics that they write is so brutal it like mm -hmm. you know when you hear something and it, it's like nail on the head it like pierces yeah. through it's that kind of feeling when i mm -hmm. when i listen to their songs there's just such a level of awareness and of criticism towards social issues but at mm -hmm. the same time it's incredibly positive and incredibly optimistic that represents a queer future for me because it's being able to be critical but still celebrating what we have and being optimistic i love that so much before we play out with the song kim Morto, i'm not sorry just one last time for the listeners where can they find you on social media oh yes so y'all can find me on social media at tim underscore lights so that's t-i-m underscore L-Y-T-C on Instagram and Twitter. Epic. Thank you so much Tim. It's been so great to chat. Thank you for having me. It's been so wonderful. Warrington, a filmmaker here, to tell us about a secret venue of the 20th century and its fascinating queer history. 
Lucy Warrington, can you tell us a bit about what you're doing and maybe set the scene at the Gateways? Yes. So the Gateways Club was, to a certain extent, a secret a secret queer club of the 20th century. However, it was also kind of quite legendary <laughs> as well because it mm. became quite famous. It, it opened in the mid-40s as the Gateways Club. It was very bohemian. And then it became female-only, a lesbian bar specifically in the late 60s and was in a famous Robert Aldridge film, The Killing of Sister George in the late 60s. It finally closed in the mid 80s. But yeah, it was open over 40 years. So it's a really important place in queer history in the UK and London specifically. I heard about it about three and a half years ago from somebody who is in a writer's group that I'm a member of in Leeds. We were in the pub one night, (laughs) as all the best stories start with that, don't they? This guy, Andrew, um, was telling us amazing stories about this club that his mum and her girlfriend used to go to in Chelsea in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. He, he was talking about the characters who went there, the people who owned it, and his mother's relationship to the owners as well. So all these stories came out and I just thought I needed to know more. And I'm from a filmmaking background, so I just I wanted to watch a documentary. So yeah, there you have it. I uh, decided to make one. <laughs> That's where we are now. What is it about you that got you this deep into this story about the gateways? Do you well, think? you know what? I have I've asked myself this question quite a number of times. Mm. At the start of this project, three years ago, mm. I was very aware that a, a lot of the women who went to the gateways were getting older. So I, I questioned myself because I'm not a lesbian myself. I'm, I'm an ally, but I am from a filmmaking background. So I had the crew and kit and everything to my disposal. So I thought, if, if, if not me, who really? And I think... What do you think it is about these stories and about this club and about this place that spoke to you? One of the things that, that astounded me was that it was truly people from all walks of life went to the gateways. The only common thing really about the gateways members was that they were women and they were lesbians and they wanted to spend time with other women. You know, they were they were bus conductresses, they were actresses, they were aristocrats, they were swimming pool attendants, they were artists and a lot of military in secret. Yeah, it was it was kind of a microcosm of lesbian life. Hence Maureen Duffy's book called The Microcosm, which was set in a fictionalized gateways club. It it was somewhere that many people have described to me as pretty unique. Uh, There weren't many places for lesbians to go and truly be themselves and not be fearful of the outside world and how they might be judged. Yeah, amazing. So kind of a safe space for basically an eclectic mix of people. And in that, so many stories being kind of hidden, really, hiding parts of their identity and the the way that they love. Um, But they're almost that's almost allowed to come out at the gateways. Yeah, they couldn't come out at work. They could have lost their jobs. They could have lost their family, friends. Their lives would have fallen apart had they been completely open about who they truly were. But the gateways was a place that was non-judgmental and accepting and non-political as well. It was a place where the woman who ran it, Gina, she was creating a place that was safe but also fun and that anybody could have fun there without the baggage of politics. Well, I'd love the listeners really to hear is what the gateways looked like from the outside. Oh, well, it was it was a, just a door, the green door on Bramerton Street in Chelsea, which was just off the King's Road. The door is still there, blue now. The Gateways Club was a members-only club, so you had to be signed in by an existing member, you know, another layer that made it safe. You couldn't just kind of enter. If you were in the military, you could get in by using a secret password, and the secret password was Dorothy, which I absolutely loved when I found that. But yes, it was very unassuming. Even people who lived round the corner or on that street, on, on Bramerton Street, didn't know what was there. And there was no one, you don't, haven't heard of anyone questioning it at all, people who didn't know what it was. The Gateways Club was a cellar bar. So, you you know, you went straight downstairs. There was not a huge amount of no- noise kind of emanating from the place. It was a really small place as well. I spoke to a woman who lived around the corner from the Gateways Club in the late 70s, early 80s. And sh- she was a lesbian and she didn't know it was there. I think in the 70s and 80s, they did advertise in gay newspapers, but mostly it was word of mouth. 
in its heyday, especially in the 60s and 70s, it was very popular. Apparently, it was heaving many nights. The door's still there, but the actual space that used to be the Gateways Club is now a stockroom of a shop. <laughs> so I have been trying to get in there, but I've not been able to yet. It must be such an amazing process interviewing so many people about this one particular place and their relationship with it. What do you think you're discovering or learning about humanity in that process? A lot of the prejudice that many of the women that I've interviewed faced, especially in their younger years, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, there are certain things that seem to have improved, but we've not come far enough. And some of the abuse that they suffered st- still does happen. And it's, st- it's in the media, which is pretty sad. What I loved and what I found really, really heartening was how accepting the place was and how it truly was just a place to have fun and be accepted. And everybody said to me, it didn't matter whether you were from a little small mining town in Yorkshire or whether you were a princess from Denmark. Um, So it didn't matter because in the Gateways Club, you were all equal. It was just a level playing field. Having said that, I also have heard stories about people getting barred and the odd fight breaking out. But that was usually down to someone chatting up somebody else's girlfriend. I find it quite surprising that there was royalty from different parts of Europe going to the gateways. Have you found anything about the story of the gateways surprising? I was quite surprised and very intrigued about the kind of the military connection to the gateways. It was never illegal in kind of mainstream society to be a lesbian. However, in the military it was. So it was against military law. So some of the the stories that I've been told on camera by women who were in the military and some of the witch hunts that happened in the military Mm -hmm. when it was suspected that you might be a lesbian. It's really, really scary. Some of the lengths that women went to to kind of seek out places like the gateways is really surprising and also once they got there everyone speaks to me about the trepidation of walking down those cellar steps in you know into the cellar and almost hiding yourself away again they were hiding themselves away by walking into this basement bar but being able to be themselves one of the women who was in the army the first few times that she went to the gateways she was surprised she met people from her camp other women who were obviously lesbian, from her camp, and nothing was said. It was kind of an unspoken rule. What happens in the gateway stays in the gateways. She actually said that to me. So it was women of all rank. If anything had have happened outside of the gateways, somebody would have pulled rank, as it were. But it was the gateways. It was a safe place. So you didn't mm. speak of it. I was I was very surprised at that, actually. Uh, not being able to leave camp unless you had a skirt on, for, for example. But having trousers in, in your bag to change into before you went into the gateways. When do you think the film will be out? We're hoping that we can get the film finished uh, by the end of the year because we would love to be able to submit it to BFI Flare Festival, which is next March. And, uh, yeah, there's some other things that I can't talk about. Um, mm-hmm. Plus, we mm-hmm. have a, a, a presenter on board that I can't talk about either, but um, very, very exciting. And she is extremely committed to, um, to telling this story. These lesbian stories in particular need to be told while they mm-hmm. still can be. Yeah. It's a tight timeline. I mean, yeah. the, the music alone, the jukebox was legendary in the gateways and... Everybody said Dusty Springfield reigned supreme in uh, in the gateways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can imagine licensing Dusty Springfield isn't the cheapest thing. That leads us on to fundraising, which is the other thing that we're trying to do. Yeah. How can people follow along and support you? Well, we're doing various kind of fundraising activities, which will be kind of individual and and maybe some sponsorship opportunities that we're exploring over the over the next six weeks. We're really wanting to offer the opportunity to to support the film, however you can support it. You know, whether that's kind of a pound or five pound or ten pound donations. We're hoping also to to produce some merchandise that that's linked to the film, which will just be fun. I want as many people to have heard about the gateways and and to hear the stories of, of the women who went there as possible it's queer history and it needs to be told but it's just also fascinating up to now I've, we've interviewed 15 or 16 women um but some of them are fairly well known 
So we've got the artist Maggie Hambling, who is a fabulous sculptor and oil painter. She was absolutely amazing in the interview. And she had so many funny stories about being barred from the gateways in the 60s. Um, she was fabulous. Barbara Hosking, the late Barbara Hosking, she, she sadly mm-hmm. died earlier this year, but she first went to the gateways in 1947. Wow, right at the beginning, really. Yeah. Which was absolutely fascinating to hear her Mm -hmm. account of what it was like for her going out as a lesbian in the late 40s, just after the war. So we, I feel like we've got, we've almost got a full circle of of the history, the gateways, but we are looking for more stories. If there's anybody out there who really would love to tell us their memories and stories of the gateways. Yeah, absolutely. Listeners, if you've got a story about the gateways, perhaps you've even been there or someone you know has been there, it'd be great to hear from you. Where where can they go to to get in contact with you, Lucy? Google the gateways film. (laughs) the easiest thing we've got Instagram we've got a Facebook page there is Twitter account as well and all of those uh, social media channels will have information about crowdfunding when we do launch you can look out in Diva magazine online and in in the print mag for news of the film as I say they've been incredibly supportive Lucy it's been absolutely brilliant to chat thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me today thank you so much Lucy We've got Dr. Molly Merriman in the house. She is a research director for Queer Britain. She's a visiting professor and member of the advisory board of the Queer History Centre at Goldsmiths in London. And at Kent State University, Dr. Merriman was one of three faculty who started the first LGBTQ studies programme in Ohio. Dr. Molly Merriman, how are you doing today? I am doing fine, Billy. It's it's lovely to have this opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, we had a little chat last week and I was really intrigued mostly by your work around LGBTQ spaces specifically in your university in Kent State Ohio. Could you tell us a little bit about the LGBTQ centre at the university and the Student Emergency Fund? Yeah so the the beginnings of of LGBTQ centres and academic programs at at Kent State University actually preceded me a little bit. We we had a, a faculty member named Dolores Knoll who in 1971 taught one of the very first LGBT classes in the United States and, and in mm. fact, in the world. Um, she taught a lesbian lives class that um, is thought to be one of the first or, or actually the first lesbian class ever offered at a at a university what i would give to go to uni to study lesbian lives honestly oh i know me too me too yeah. and, <laughs> and you know i i never you know as a student got to take a, an an lgbt course and mm-hmm. um and, and in fact was always like grasping at straws to get to you know see or read anything about about lesbians at, at all yeah Totally. Yeah, you know, it's it's really been an excluded category in many ways mm-hmm. at, at universities. But it's amazing how Dolores Knoll brought that in 1971. That is, that's 50 years this year, right? Yeah. That's a long time ago. And in a place, Ohio being quite an evangelical area. We, yeah, we, Ohio is definitely the Bible Belt. And we still rank as one of the worst states in, in the United States when it comes to LGBTQ rights. We still don't have a, a, a significant you know, civil rights protections for LGBT folks in the United States. And yeah, we're, we're one of the, the later, slower states. And, and I think at, at Kent State, one of the things that, that really impacted our culture was the May 4th, 1970 massacre when the National Guard uh, fired on student protesters and, and killed four. And, and that was the environment that Dolores was working in that I, I think really encouraged her to come out. And, you know, when you think about coming out in, in the early 1970s, you know, there weren't many women faculty, period. And so then to, to come out as a lesbian faculty member was just unprecedented. So, you know, her courage and and the path that, that she established was considerable. Would you say she was a bit of a hero then, Dolores Knoll? Absolutely. Absolutely. A, a significant person. Not only did she create this, this first class, but she was the faculty 
faculty advisor for what was then called the, the they referred to it as the, the KGLF, which is the Kent Gay Liberation Front. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love that period of time. They used such, you know, activist language. And, mm-hmm. and that was established the, the same year. And as, as far as we've been able to document, it's the oldest continuously operating student LGBT organization. And, um, you know, it's, it's gone through name changes. And Kent State now we have, I, I actually have lost count of how many different LGBT student organizations we have. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's, it really has, has blossomed in a beautiful way because we have separate organizations for graduate students. There are um, even more specific identity groups uh, for trans students, for students mm-hmm. of color, um, and and we have professional um, student organizations. So we even have we we actually have a school of aeronautics, and there's an aeronautics student organization that is specific to LGBTQ. That's amazing. I mean, I went to Bristol University, which is quite a liberal city in England, and there was only one queer society, the LGBTQ plus society. And the only thing we really had in common was the fact that we like potentially might want to be intimate with each other. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so it's so good to hear that in Ohio, there's just like an array of opportunities for the queer community in in your university. Yeah. And I I think a lot of that has to do with us, you know, having the first LGBTQ studies program in Ohio. We, We started Started, it was myself and two other faculty members. Um, we, I think we had our test class in 2000 and then the program officially launched in 2001 after we yeah. went, you know, we had to go to the state, you know, to, to get approval and all of that. And so we were, we were actually one of the first in the, in the country. And, you know, we built on the, the, the tradition that Professor Knoll started. And then once we started the academic program, we realized that we needed to do more in terms of, you know, creating that space for LGBTQ students. You know, we had the intellectual home, but we realized there needed to be more, you know, and I think that in terms of the the LGBTQ student center, you know, we, we realized that there was almost a, I think, a very unrealistic expectation that the student organization could also be advocating for change, which you know, obviously, you know, love student activists and, and, and want students to stay, you know, engaged mm-hmm. in activism. But there also is a need for the institution to be responsible and, and provide the cert that students need. And Ohio is, you know, a pretty evangelical state. It's it's pretty conservative. And when, when students would come and take our classes and get involved with student life, they would go home over break and come out to their parents. And in many cases, the, the parents were loving and accepting and acting as one expects and hopes a family would act. But sadly, we also had students that would go home, come out, and and their parents would cut them off financially. You know, we had uh, students who were homeless, students who couldn't afford their tuition. And so we established the emergency fund. It became one of the most successful fundraising cases we had. When people heard about it, like some people would only give a dollar, but you know, people were moved and wanted to help. And now it's at the point where it's a fully endowed scholarship. And, and it, you know, it's helped so many students. You know, we, we've expanded it now to where if a student, a trans student has a need for, um, for getting hormones, you know, they can do that. The emergency fund, it, it really just covers anything that, that relates to the health, safety and security of our students. That's amazing. And you know what, as well, I'm sure that part of the reason why it's so successful in your area is because it's perhaps so needed. But at the same time, people in England and the UK are also facing similar problems of being rejected by their family and being made homeless. So I really hope that um, the education follows suit in England and people are licking their thumbs and flicking the pages and taking note right now, um, Molly, because honestly, I think it's incredibly inspirational. So yeah, I, I, I do hope that there's a listener out there that would feel inspired to start something similar. I'm really interested in your LGBTQ centre in particular as a physical space as well. You've mentioned Dolores Knoll and you've mentioned the education system and how that's built to provide some queer education programmes. Um, but what about the LGBTQ centre as, as a space? Now, I know we were going to do past, present and future. And I feel like we've sort of looked at the past a bit with the story of Dolores Knoll and the way in which queer space was established in the university then and now looking at the present and the lgbtq center what sort of things happen there 
Yeah, so it's a space and it's a a space that has full-time staff in it. There's actually two full-time director and assistant director. On on one hand, it's a space where any LGBTQ plus or allied student can come. It's it's actually physically in our student center on campus, specifically for LGBTQ plus students. It's a very nice space. It's got you know sofas and and uh, other furniture that can be rearranged. If they want to study, they can study in there. It's right next to the library. If they want to hold meetings, informal or formal meetings, they can. There's a lot of activities that happen now when it's when it's operated as a physical space there's they they call it crafternoons and they they have a time where students can get together and you know knit or um paint whatever craft they want to engage in it's just you know different activities that sort of break the ice and Mm. allow people to be themselves. And then the staff are are there to advocate for students. You know, one of the things they do is they maintain an active map of safe bathroom spaces for uh, trans and and genderqueer students. You'll really just try to anticipate what those space needs are. Mm, that's amazing. I honestly could have so done with something like that at university when I was when I was in Bristol. Absolutely, and that, something that I feel very strongly convicted about is that as someone who has been in administration and and you know is a faculty member at my university, if we're going to encourage students who are minorities of any kind, and I include you know, students with disabilities in, in my expressions of students who matter that have different minority status, then I think that we as an institution have a responsibility to ensure that those students have a space, um, you know, can, can be represented, can be safe, and can fully express themselves. Yeah, totally. Something that comes to mind for me as well was that a lot of the queer spaces at my university were like surrounded by drink culture and and clubbing. And so for anyone who wasn't interested in that or didn't drink or was sober in any way, weren't really included in the queer spaces. So yeah, that's amazing to hear. Thank you, Molly. Now, I'm just wondering now, we're running out of time. It's gone really quickly and I feel like there's probably so much we haven't even covered. But I wanted to ask you, we've done the past, we've done the present and now it's time for the future. How would you describe your utopic queer space of the future? For me, the utopian queer intellectual space would be a space where, again, people who are queer not only are able to fully express themselves intellectually, and I'm thinking not only in terms of classroom space, but also, you know, scholarly publications and, you know, scholarly presentations and and all of that, but that we would be able to use our queerness to transform thinking. And I think that queer theory has been very fascinating in how it sort of destabilizes and problematizes the ways that we foundationally think. And and it's, you know, it's changed our understanding of history. It's changed our understanding of literature. What I'd like to see is, you know, for me, that utopian space would be an intellectual space that is fundamentally queer, that is disrupting status quo. And I, I know that, you know, increasingly LGBTQ life is mainstream and and that that absolutely has its good points in terms of acceptance and legal rights and all of that. But, you know, in my heart, I'm, I'm the queer activist and I really value how queerness can cause discomfort in, in, in the best sense of discomfort, where mm-hmm. it can shake you out of the foundations of your thinking or your understanding of, you know, whether it be a space or a place or a way of being. And, you know, and I I think there's a lot that needs disrupted in universities and and places of education. I think we've become institutionalized. We've become boring. You know, for me, that queer space would disrupt power and and disrupt the structure and and allow the most compelling, fun ideas to to rise to the forefront. Mm, Love that. Any plans to rekindle the glowing coals of Dolores Knoll's Lesbian Lives academic program? You know, we have not yet created a, a lesbian class. I do think that it is ripe for revisiting. It, as I'm sure you know, like quite often when we talk about LGBTQ, we're talking about cis, gay, white men. And, and 
the patriarchy is rife even in the in the LGBTQ. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so I, I you know, I do think that there is a space for that. So what I'm I'm currently working on is a curriculum that is specific to LGBTQ activism and um, peaceful change can can happen when it comes to sexual orientation and gender identity. That sounds sounds like a class I want to go to. I wish you were over in England. You could come and lead some classes somewhere in a public sort of space. I would love to do that, and I, I think at, at some point I, I will. I, I would love to, to teach a class. Well, here's hoping that you go on a world tour teaching everyone all about the lesbians that need to be in the forefront like Del- Dolores Knoll. <laughs> that would be lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Molly Merriman, it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you today. And just before we go, if you've got anything that the listeners can keep in touch with any of the projects you're a part of. Yes, I, I would say, you know, definitely go to the, the Queer Britain website and there's a, a section called Virtually Queer that includes some oral history videos and if anyone is interested in participating in the Queer Pandemic Project, they can reach out to me either through Kent State or, or Queer Britain. I would love to hear everyone's stories. Dr. Molly Merriman, it's been great. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in and thanks to all our fab guests as well. Hope you enjoyed our show on Queer Spaces Past, Present and Future. Queers and allies, I'm sending you love. Keep fighting the good fight and have a beautiful season. Enjoy some of that sunshine if you can. All right, over and out from me. Have a great one. (laughs) 